Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Okay, welcome everybody. Um, today's event is sponsored and funded by KSU's Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity. My name is Timothy Matthews. I am the Center Director and Economics Faculty here at Kennesaw State University. Our guest speaker today is Dr. Peter Calcano. He is a professor of economics and the director of the Center for Public Choice and Market Process at College of Charleston in South Carolina. Uh, he has a PhD in economics from Auburn University and a BS in economics and history from Hillsdale College. His areas of expertise are in public choice, public finance, and political economy. He's written dozens of academic journal articles in prestigious outlets such as Contemporary Economic Policy, Public Choice, Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, Public Finance Review, and Economics of Governance. Today he will be giving a talk titled The Wisdom of Politicians, The Role of the State in Economic Development. Uh, so Peter, welcome virtually to Kennesaw State University's Bagwell Center. Thank you, Tim, for that uh, introduction and, and thanks for um, having me here. I want to thank uh, Dr. Matthews and the Bagwell Center for giving me this opportunity to speak with all of you today. I'm excited about this opportunity and um, hopefully we'll have a, uh, uh, a good presentation and good discussion over this topic. So what I want to talk about today um, the, is, is the idea of the state's involvement in economic development decisions and whether or not politicians are actually the right individuals to be making these types of decisions with regards to economic investment and developing the economy. This is an area that I um, started working on in graduate school. It's actually the area which I wrote my dissertation and I've spent a good bit of the time in my career um, working on this topic. So I want to um, start off things with a, uh, a quote to get you an idea of where I think I'm gonna be sort of going with this. Um, this is a quote from F.A. Hayek. Uh, F.A. Hayek won the Nobel Prize in um, 1974 and wrote a lot on the idea of um, division of knowledge and the idea that the impossibility of socialism and central planning with the idea that every there's no one individual or no small group of individuals that could possibly know all the things necessary to plan an economy. And so this uh, this quote is a very famous one from Hayek from one of his last books. The curious task of economics is to demonstrate how uh, to men how little they know about what they imagine they can design. And this is going to play a, a large role in what we're going to talk about today because a lot of state officials imagine that they can design a successful state economy, a, st a successful state economic development plan that will lead to uh, greater growth, greater prosperity for their citizens. And that's a question we're going to look at and see whether or not that is actually uh, the case. So what is state economic development and what do I mean by this? Um, when we're talking about this, we're talking about state and local governments using what we refer to as targeted incentives uh, to attract a firm to a state. So we've all seen these news articles um, of individuals uh, about individual firms getting you know, money from the state government to locate in a particular location. And what we mean by targeted incentives is that those incentives only apply to a specific firm. And I've got here a litany of different types of incentives, right, from job development credits to grants and loans. 
But at the end of the day, what we're really talking about is these are either tax breaks of some kind, tax credits, tax abatements, forgiveness of taxes or reduced taxes, or direct subsidies to these firms if they locate in this uh, geographical area. And both states and local governments use these tools, as we'll talk about here more in a second. And the idea is that these are only given again to these firms. So the existing firms and in, in industries in the area, right, uh, don't receive the benefits, don't have these tax cuts, don't have these advantages that the other, uh, that this targeted firm does. And the idea is that these targeted firms claim that they need these incentives oftentimes to make it worthwhile to move to a location, or as we'll talk about in a little bit, sometimes to not move away from a location. So let's look at some relatively recent examples. Uh, most of you probably remember when Amazon announced that they were going to uh, have a second headquarters, right, in the US. And within a very short period of time, uh, something like 38 states started putting out bids. And in, in the end, there were 20 states that were competing to get this second headquarters, right? all of them throwing money at Amazon in some way, shape, or form. In the end, it came down to Virginia and New York. Uh, both of them, they were going to actually build locations in both places. Um, Virginia then offered them 573 million in tax breaks, 23 million in cash and other incentives. New York had originally planned to give them um, tax breaks in the order of 1.5 billion. Yes, that's billion with a B. Um, and crash cash grants of about 325 million and in other incentives. Now, New York ended up pulling out of the deal. Um, it ended up falling through. But we've seen this all over again. Um, a few years ago, Foxconn uh, was given 3 billion. This is the largest incentive package that was done in the US up to this point to attract them to come to the state of Wisconsin. Um, and we've done others right in my, in my home state of South Carolina, where I am. Several years ago, we gave Boeing 900 million, right, to move from Washington uh, to have an additional plant here in South Carolina. So we run the gambit of all of these. And again, these are just some highlights and some examples of what I'm talking about here, right? We're trying to attract these firms. Um, just for some reference here, I pulled up some data on um, Georgia. And there's a data source out there called um, uh, good jobs first it has a subsidy tracker so if you're ever interested in looking up this information uh, they do a pretty good job of trying to keep track of most of this as best they can and for georgia um, uh, since they've been tracking this which is about since the late 90s they've given about 1.9 billion in subsidies majority of which has been done over the last decade and something like 930 firms. So it averages out to about $2 million per firm that are being subsidized in the state of Georgia. So it gives you an idea of just how pervasive uh, these incentives are and how active um, state and local governments are in doing this. And why did they do this, right? This is really the thing that we've sort of need to think about. Why provide these types of economic incentives? And, you know, if we think about this, the state officials and local officials, right, suggest that they're trying to promote unemployment. Creating jobs is a big area here. We talk about this all the time of that we're going to create uh, jobs for people. And the question, one of the questions we have to think about today is whether or not it's the role of government to be creating jobs. But they say it's going to foster innovation, generate economic growth for their state, right? They are going to do things, they're going to bring firms here that are going to create, oftentimes they talk about economic clusters, uh, that they're going to bring in one major firm and that will bring in, say, all of their suppliers and this will generate economic growth for their city, for their state. And you see this quote here that I have from um, Keith Poole and some of his research that said the governors, mayors, legislators and council members justify these public investments on the ground that private sector decisions to invest in the community result in jobs, incomes, tax revenues that are essential to economic and social well-being of a community or state, right? So we argue that this is what you have to do in order to get firms to come, right? This is how you generate economic growth in your state. 
And without a doubt, right, um, again, here's a site from Pew Research that shows that, you know, this is what state economic development officers think is their leading tool is to offer these types of incentives, right? This is their best way they think to expand their state economies. And so this is, again, part of what we want to think about is, is this the right way to do this? What has the research shown us? And are there better alternatives out there than these types of incentives? And before we get into the details of this too much, right? Want to step back and think about the idea of what generates economic growth? Why and how do we get it? And it's important to understand that you know economic growth is a function of both the inputs that we have within a state, the resources, and the institutions. So when we think about what you know the inputs are within a state, within a community, right? You've got a labor force, you've got technology, infrastructure, resources available, what financing opportunities for new businesses. These are things that entrepreneurs and business leaders look for when they're trying to decide either where to start a location or whether or not to invest or start a business. And those inputs are obviously important, right? You want good labor, you want good infrastructure to be able to say that this is the right location, this is the right area and so forth. But having those inputs alone, it's not enough, right? We know this. There are those inputs all get filtered through these institutions that are within the state. And, you know, we want to think about these as government policies. It's what um, William Bommel and others refer to as the rules of the game, right? What are the rules by which we play when we're operating in these environments? So what are the rules of the game? Well, what's the tax system? What's the, what's the state tax structure like? What kinds of business regulations do we find in the state? What is the legal system and the judicial system like? How well are property rights expected? All of those things matter because when we filter the, the inputs through those, that's what's going to help determine what the economic outcomes look like. Are the economic outcomes going to be wage and income growth? Are they going to be new business formation, jobs created, patents, all the things that we want? But whether or not we get desirable outcomes, whether or not we get good outcomes is really a function of those institutions. Um, my um, my friend Russ Sobel likes to use this example, and in fact, I stole this slide from him, uh, says that, you know, if we think about it this way, if the, right, if the inputs are, you know, the things to say make a cake, flour, sugar, butter, right, we, eggs, we need all these things to make a great cake. The institutions are like the oven. We put, the, um, we put all these great resources into the oven and out should come delicious cake. But if the oven is broken, if the resources and if the institutions aren't correct, then it doesn't matter how much inputs we throw into this, we're not going to get good outcomes. And in many ways, this is really going back to Adam Smith's question from the Wealth of Nations, right? Why is it that some countries are rich and others are poor? The policies are and the economic systems that we have matter even more so than resources, geography, education, right? Um, how much, say, a country relies on uh, good institutions of capitalism differs, and that's going to differ in the outcome. Well, if we think about this, states aren't much different. Um, states have differing reliance on capitalism and arrangements that would be associated with capitalism. So there's an economic freedom of North America, which looks at specifically the US states and looks at various aspects of things that determine whether or not a state is more or less economically free. And just to give you an idea here, so currently in the most recent report, um, the state of New York ranks 50. They are the least economic free uh, state in the country right now. Uh, where I am, South Carolina, we're at 29. And Georgia, right? Georgia, you should be happy. Georgia's sixth on the economic freedom, on most recent economic freedom poll, right? So they're in the top 10. They have relatively good economic institutions to generate uh, good economic outcomes.
so are we getting good outcomes is the question right from these types of uh, economic development incentives and this is one of the most frustrating things i think i've experienced of having written on this myself and reading this literature and being familiar with this literature for close to 20 years now um, is that it's pretty overwhelming that we don't really get good outcomes from this and yet we continue to do this right states and local governments continue to offer these types of subsidies and tax incentives um, there's just not a lot of good evidence that say the impact on manufacturing output is increased from offering these types of incentives that unemployment in a state dramatically reduces um, the state of south carolina right if you look over the last uh, i think it's something like 20 years the unemployment rate has not been affected for having i think something like uh, increased the amount of incentives by something like 30 fold and there's still no real dramatic effect on unemployment there's not a lot of evidence that you know these large firms that come into an area have a lot of positive impact on the local economy um, and the tax incentives really just don't seem to have um, an impact on the targeted industries they don't always affect where firms are going to locate so timothy bardic is um, probably one of the most uh, best known economists that works in this area and he recently put out a study where he looked at all of the literature that has been um, working on this and seeing the effects of incentives, whether it's economic growth, output, unemployment, all these things that are measurable, tax revenues, and looked at these and said, okay, it's between two to 25% of the firms that are actually being offered these incentives, two to 25% of the time, it actually affects the outcome of the decision which means that anywhere between 98 to 75% of the time, doesn't matter, right? Firms have already decided to locate in that, in that place, in that state, in that city, and this is just gravy for them, right? This is just additional incentives that just makes it more affordable for them, ways in which they can extract benefits from the state, but they were gonna locate there regardless. So at best, 25% of the time, it changes the outcome of this decision. So why is that and what is goes into this? So co-author of mine likes to use this phrase, right? That incentives can't turn a moose into a camel. That there it doesn't matter how much you offer firms in terms of benefits sometimes, right? There are certain things that firms require uh, and geographical locations and things that they desire that aren't going to be there regardless of how much benefits they're given. So three broad areas, just to give you an example, right? So there's sort of immutable or geographic conditions. So are they located in the mountains? Are there good natural resources? Do you have access to a port? What is the infrastructure like? So these are things that, again, you cannot necessarily easily change from you know city to city and incentives aren't going to change them. What are your input factors like? Do you have a strong labor force? What are utility prices and energy prices like in that area? What are those things and how are they going to affect? And then there's the economic environment. So what's the tax policy, the regulatory uh, framework look like, the fiscal policy? Those are the institutions. All three of those, I would argue, matter more to, to firms when they're making decisions than the incentives. And in fact, lots of firms have said that, you know, these other criteria are way ahead on the list. The economic incentives that they receive are, are generally at the bottom of the list. So again, economic incentives aren't going to change these. Let me give you a, um, a real example from um, uh, a few years back. So in 1992, um, BMW was deciding whether or not to where to locate their first plant in the US. Uh, and they were talking to Greenville, South Carolina and saying that they were thinking about opening a plant. And here was BMW's criteria. They said that these were the things that were most important to them. They wanted proximity to an international airport. They wanted a port. They wanted good access to rails. 
and they were worried about union presence. In particular, they wanted a relatively low union presence. And they wanted to be, they were concerned about the number of time zones between them and Bonn, Germany. So again, so Greenville, South Carolina had put together a incentive package to attract them, to attract BMW to come and locate their plant there. And it was somewhere in the neighborhood of around $30 million then. Well, Omaha, Nebraska decided that they were going to get in on the action. So they put a bid out there to attract BMW. Now, I don't look at US maps very often, but last time I did, Nebraska was a little bit further west, right, of South Carolina, which means that it's going to be further away in terms of time zone from Bond. And again, it's not exactly easily accessible to a port. Right? And it didn't matter how many economic incentives we were going to, Omaha was going to throw at them, right? It's not going to make that port any closer. So where are they going to end up, right? And it turns out they did end up in Greenville, South Carolina, but not before Greenville almost tripled the incentive package to bring them because they were worried that they might go to Omaha, right? And this is the type of thing, right? It, it wouldn't have mattered um, how much Omaha had given to them, right? It's not going to turn that moose into a camel. It's not going to create a port where a port doesn't exist. And so we have to think about these. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of one other story that um, I, I met a gentleman from Indiana a few years ago who um, for a while was the Secretary of Commerce. And uh, when he was there, they had a really good understanding. They really tried to minimize uh, their state development incentives. And he would sit down with firms and he would say, look, we know you're coming here. We know you've already decided on this. And so we are not going to offer you anything. You can come or you can not. And um, they were very successful in terms of being able to still attract firms. So what's the real problem here? Right. Like any time we use taxes, right, any time we introduce taxes, or in this case, tax incentives, tax breaks, tax credits, these tend to create distortions in markets, right? They can misallocate resources. And the biggest problem we have with tax incentives and targeted incentives in general is that it's really hard to prove the counterfactual, right? The idea that the firm would have come there anyway had we not provided that um, incentive is something that is really difficult to suggest. Although, again, we think that we have some evidence for it, but it's a really hard thing to convince politicians of and to policymakers that firms were going to come anyway. Nonetheless, right, policymakers here don't have access to the dispersed knowledge um, possessed by private individuals, they can't determine what that optimal allocation of resources is. And so more often than not, right, we are probably misallocating resources in both the private and public uh, sector. And this is the issue, right, that we may be misallocating resources. If we think about the times where those, if we say that most of the time it doesn't matter and they're going to locate there anyway, maybe it's a smaller misallocation. But those quarter of the times where we do, we could really be misallocating resources and they may not be as productive as they otherwise would be. One of the things that I've stressed to politicians over the years when I've talked to them about this is the idea that from a macro perspective, if we think about the national economy, right, what are we doing? We're moving resources around. We are just simply reallocating them, right? So whether Nissan ends up building a plant in Alabama or South Carolina or Georgia, they were going to build a plant. And from a national perspective, from a GDP perspective, nothing's really changed all that much. And the question is, is where is the most optimal place for them to have done it, where they could, in fact, be the most productive, get the greatest resources, have the best economic institutions to, in fact, grow their business, and whether or not that's going to have an impact on national GDP. But more importantly, unfortunately, we get into these situations where 
the state politicians view it as, well, if we don't do this, the other state will. And it becomes this idea of a zero-sum game here. Again, I want to stress that a little bit more uh, in just a minute. But again, the problem here is really that policymakers have no means of judging the opportunity costs of the alternative uses of these redistributed resources. So we don't know, right? We can't say that, oh, we needed these people here or that they wouldn't have come without the incentives. So what's the real problem here, right? Uh, again, one of the other factors that goes into all of this is we get what we refer to in public choice as a lot of rent-seeking activity. So rent-seeking, if you're not familiar with the concept, is using political influence um, to extract, say, more profit. In particular, we refer to this as rent as opposed to profit-seeking, right? Entrepreneurs and markets engage in profit-seeking, when we use political influence, we tend to refer to this as rent seeking. And so firms are encouraged to rent seek for their industry, right? Various special interest groups, in this case, to get the targeted incentives. They go out and they actually pit locations against each other. They know that they will, in fact, bid against each other to up the antes and to get the best deal. And this only encourages this activity, right? So what's the problem with rent seeking, right? And you say, oh, firms are getting to be more profitable. Yeah, but they are in a very wasteful way. More often than not, these types of things either inhibit their, uh, hamper their competition, right? Give them an advantage that their um, competitors don't have. They require resources to come from, say, the private sector in the case of subsidies being taxed away. And at the end, we have to think about this, right? So firms spend money, right? Visiting these visiting states, visiting locations, being wined and dined by uh, these state officials to say that this is the place you should come. This is the location you should do this. And how could those resources have been used otherwise, right? So we end up wasting resources in the way that at the end of the day, we still get the one plant that was going to be created, right? But we spent a whole lot of money trying to get it to that particular location, right? Firms spent a lot of time and energy competing with these states and getting them to demonstrate what they have to offer. And the more that we do this, right, the problem with rent seeking is it only invites more rent seeking. So one of the things we can talk about is the idea that uh, once these firms locate, right, the incentives don't stop. If the whole idea is that, oh, well, we needed to give them the money to locate there. We needed to provide them the incentives to make this a worthwhile decision for them to uh, locate in our state, in our community. Well, why did then we need to give them incentives once they're there? And we see this happen over and over and over again, right? Alabama has given Mercedes incentives two, three, four times after they've located plants there, right? Michigan has given GM and Ford subsidy after subsidy after subsidy after they've located plants. Um, and the list goes on, right? Boeing in South Carolina, just a couple of years after they located there, after they said they needed the resources from the state to locate there, got an additional subsidy because they wanted to expand. More importantly, right, another problem here is that this just creates a zero-sum game. So I mentioned the idea that something like 20 different states were competing for the headquarters for Amazon, right? Well, this just sets up this whole idea of a zero-sum game, right? If Virginia gets it, no one else can. Right? If New York gets it, no one else can. And so rather than this being mutually beneficial exchange, Right, we're, we're setting something up where somebody wins and somebody loses. The other part that's we got to think about is that we get this idea of firms threatening to move after they've already come to a location. So I want to give this example. There's a there's a firm uh, called Kenna Metal that was in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. 
not a very not a very large firm, but it had been there for a long time, right? Um, been a very successful manufacturing plant in Latrobe. And they were saying after being there for decades that they were going to potentially move out of the state. So what did the governor do? The governor gave them a million dollars in incentives to stay, to stay in Pennsylvania. But what did they do? They actually ended up still moving their location. They moved to Pittsburgh. So all the jobs that existed in Latrobe for decades were gone and they moved them to Pittsburgh because that was a better location and they got a million dollars to do it. But hey, they stayed in the state of Pennsylvania. Again, what are we doing? We're creating all this unnecessary competition. We're creating beggar thy neighbor policies. We're getting repeated extractions. And, and this does just create potentially a culture that could become corrupting. <clears throat> so, again, what are we measuring here? And are we measuring the right things? You'll often see news stories, right, that are talking about the idea that, um, you know, a firm got X number of incentives to locate in Charleston, South Carolina, for example, or Atlanta, Georgia, wherever it may be. And more often than not, one of those benefits is infrastructure. So we're going to build um, a new off-ramp off of the interstate to make it easy to access the plant. Or we're going to build a new road, new infrastructure around where that plant is going to be located so that they can have better access to distribution networks. And that's great, but we account for that as a benefit to the firm, right? That they're going to spend, say, you know, $10 million on infrastructure. Well, chances are the Department of Transportation is going to spend that $10 million Right? Their budgets don't get bigger because Volvo, Boeing, whoever comes to your state. What you're doing is probably reallocating that infrastructure expenditure. And so should we be counting that as a benefit to this firm? We also tend to overstate the benefits to citizens. I mentioned the example of Kennametal, right? and the idea that they moved their firm from Latrobe, Pennsylvania to Pittsburgh. So it stayed within the state. It shut down and everybody that was employed at Latrobe lost their job. And then they went back and started hiring people, obviously, in Pittsburgh. The interesting thing is that the state of Pennsylvania got to count all the jobs in Pittsburgh as new jobs, new jobs that they created. Right, so we're double counting here, right? The jobs existed when they were at Latrobe, and now we're going to say that it's a new job because they're in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, and this is the thing, right? Um, the, the, one of the things is that we tend to do when we talk about the new jobs is that we're often getting a reshuffling of local labor labor force. Right, a new plant comes in, and it's not the fact that people who were unemployed all of a sudden fill these positions and then unemployment goes away. Chances are these people were already employed somewhere and now they're going and filling positions at the new plant and no one ever looks at whether or not the positions that they leave get filled. So again, let me give you an example here. Um, in the early 2000s, Nissan opened up a plant in Mississippi and 90% of the workers employed there, right? lived and worked in the um, five counties surrounding the plant. They already were working there. They already lived there, right? So only 10% of the jobs at the um, new plant were taken by individuals who were unemployed or prior to opening the plant, moved there from other some other location, right? So what we did again was just a reshuffling of all of this. We didn't necessarily create new jobs and better so when we say that we're creating jobs, a lot of times we're either double counting or over counting or overstating right, the jobs that are created because we're not looking back at the idea that some of these jobs are left open when people leave them to take the new jobs. I would argue that we're measuring the wrong thing and in particular the politicians make an emphasis on measuring the wrong thing. While the economists have been looking at things like economic growth and unemployment and you know, um, 
and, and output, the politicians are talking about tax revenue, right? They're saying that tax revenue is going to increase as a result of this, either because it's going to bring in new revenue from people moving to the area, or, right, uh, because they're going to get a return on their investment. So the idea is if I take a dollar out of the general revenue fund from the state and we give it to Boeing or to Volvo or to Amazon, we're going to get some sort of return on that investment. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I want state officials to be my, my wealth management person. Right? And being the one that's deciding the return on my investment and my tax dollars. But this is what they're thinking about, right, is how much is it bringing in in terms of tax revenue? And that only increases the public sector. So the result is that we get a larger public sector, more resources for them to control and spend. The question is, is that a desirable thing in the first place, right, that we want more tax revenue and a larger government sector for them to uh, have control over? The other piece of this is that if that's true, Right, and they do now, and they now do have more resources to spend in terms of uh, tax revenues. Are we getting better outcomes at the state level, local levels for those resources? Right, we know that public goods like infrastructure, education, um, and so forth, the things that we want the local and, and state governments to be working on, are we getting better public goods and services? as a result of these larger tax revenues. And that's not obvious. In fact, the literature suggests that there might even be some crowding out effects, right? When we give these monies to these firms, we don't have, because we don't collect revenues from those firms in terms of taxes, we might actually get a reshifting and we might actually see that there's some crowding out and we don't spend as much on public goods as we otherwise could. I wanna go back to this idea of return on investment for one minute and give you just some examples. One industry that is notorious for this, uh, for, for asking for incentives, is the film industry. And so uh, movie producers, film producers, television producers, right, will ask state and local governments to provide them subsidies to come and film on location in that place. Atlanta's very big on offering, right, uh, these types of incentives. And here's the thing, these are temporary at best. These are not permanent jobs. So, you know, these film crews come, they're there for a few months, they shoot, they leave. They're not creating any permanent positions. And more often than not, they bring a lot of their own people. So we're not even creating jobs, right, for people in the local economy. Now we can say, oh, well, they're staying in our hotels and they are eating restaurants. But again, the economic impacts aren't that high for that. So let me just give you some estimates on some of these. Right. So again, if we think about this as taking one dollar out of tax revenue, right, and investing and giving it to a film company to produce a show, to produce a film uh, in that city, in that state, what's the return? Turn on that investment. How many dollars in tax revenue is coming back? So the film industry is horrible on this in terms of return. Michigan something gets like 11 cents on that dollar. Louisiana's 23 cents. Massachusetts 14. Connecticut, which is really big on this, gets seven cents back on the dollar. Right? None of the states that have done this get a return. Right? So you're investing a dollar in this of tax revenue and getting something substantially less back, right? I don't know about you, but that's not the kind of way I wanna make my investments, right? I don't want to have a return that's giving me less uh, than what I take out of this. So, um, and yet constantly pushing to say that we wanna have, um, you know, films come and, and television things done in our area and in our production that this is somehow beneficial. So why do we offer these incentives? That's really, I think, some of the questions that we need to be thinking about. You know, why do we offer these economic incentives? This is something that I've struggled with a lot, something that I've been focusing on in my research in particular, 
is the economic benefits don't seem to be there. There do not seem to be gains on the things that we measure with regards to job creation, right? Unemployment declining, greater output, growth, clusters generating, right? Every politician thinks that they can create the next Silicon Valley. And the truth is, is things like Silicon Valley, right? And other types of clusters like that emerge naturally from entrepreneurs recognizing that resources are there, talents there, opportunities are there, right? None of these are generally planned and they very rarely emerge, right? As a result of states investing in these types of opportunities. So what is the benefit, right? I would argue there's a political benefit. Politicians gain votes by saying they're creating jobs, right? We like the idea of saying, hey, my guy brought Boeing to the state of South Carolina. They brought him to Charleston. They created jobs. They created opportunities for people in my state. It sounds really, really great, right? Who doesn't like that idea? But are we really creating jobs? As I suggested, right, there's a lot of double counting. There's a lot of situations where we're simply reshuffling. And are the jobs that we're creating really worth it? Are we getting a return on these that are worthwhile? Um, more often than not, if you look at the amount that we give firms and the number of jobs that they create, they are, if we think about this in terms of the dollar value per job, they're, we're paying two, three, sometimes four times more for that job to create that job than that person's actually going to earn. In North Carolina a few years ago, uh, they gave uh, incentives to build a new FedEx plant and a new FedEx location. And the average FedEx driver makes around $35,000 a year and if you look at how much they gave for the number of jobs they said they were going to create, it was costing something like $77,000 per job. So we're paying twice as much to create the job as the person's actually going to earn. But again, when a politician says that they've created jobs, we love that, right? We like that. We love the ribbon cuttings. They love the idea that they can say they brought something positive to their state. Um, Here's the thing that's interesting. A few years ago, I did a, a project looking at whether what are the fiscal conditions within a state and whether or not those matter in terms of whether or not you're more likely uh, to give incentives. And it turns out that when you have poor fiscal policy, greater state debt, greater deficit, when you have right poor tax policy, you're more likely to give incentives. Um, the idea here is that you're sort of compensating for that bad economic institution, right? We can't, and this is the problem, right? Rather than politicians trying to fix the poor economic institutions, the poor conditions with regards to tax policy or fiscal policy, their solution is to compensate by giving them more tax credits or subsidies. The status quo stays, the bad tax policy stays in place, right? Because that's easier. It's a lot easier to offer targeted incentives than to try to reform economic conditions. And I've heard politicians literally state this. In South Carolina, um, we have one of the highest property tax rates on um, manufacturing equipment. And we actually have it written into our constitution. Okay, so it's not even, sadly, it's not even a piece of legislature constitutional provision. So it would require constitutional reform. And the politicians know this. They actually have said, look, we have poor tax rates. We have poor tax policy. We've got to make up for this, right? But it's not impossible to reform these. It's not impossible to reform even a constitutional revision, right? And think about if we did that, how much more business they could attract. But again, much easier to talk about trying to want to maximize tax revenue or to right, just simply offer the incentives than to reform tax policy. 
So what should we be doing? And what can be done about this? What do I think should be done? Well, obviously the most extreme thing and the most uh, that I would like to see from a pre-market perspective would be to off stop offering the economic incentives altogether. We should be creating an environment that attracts all businesses and doesn't target firms. So states should be trying to reform their tax policies, having low broad tax bases, whether it's corporate tax, income tax, property taxes, right? They should be taking the money that they do have in their general funds and investing in education to make sure they've got strong labor forces, right? That they should be investing in infrastructure so that distribution networks and so forth are good, right? So that they can market to the firms that they have a good economic environment for them to locate it. And not just for a particular firm, right? But any firm that wants to start there, whether it's local or whether or not it's coming into the area, right? This is how we can attract firms. But how do we do this, right? As I mentioned before, we tend to be in an arms race and every local politician I've suggested to this too, right? They've said, well, you know, that's great, but if we don't do, if we don't do it, Georgia will, Tennessee will, Alabama will, we have to do this or we'll never get anybody locating here. And maybe that's true. So one solution, um, there's an economist at um, Mercatus who's written on this recently, Michael Ferran, who's talked about the idea of maybe governors need to try to create some sort of compact, right? an agreement between the states that they would actually try to all agree, right? or maybe at least regionally, that they would all agree that they would not offer incentives, that they would simply let firms decide on their own. And maybe that's a strategy that we could use to get out of here. It's difficult, it takes a lot of political will, but maybe that's an alternative. At a minimum, right, we need better cost-benefit analysis, right? Oftentimes, we fail to, to disclose all the incentives, right? We overestimate. We often don't know the full costs. And so having better cost-benefit analysis of even trying to think about what the opportunity costs of these resources could possibly be and whether or not this is, in fact, a good investment from tax perspectives would be an improvement. Simply having better transparency on these packages would also be, obviously, a big improvement. Knowing that firms can, um, you know, understanding exactly what we're offering to firms would go a long way in terms of people understanding whether or not this is actually uh, a desirable thing. Right? Is it worth it to pay twice as much to get a job than what it's going to pay? Why is all this important again? And, you know, why do we think that it shouldn't be state policy officials that are doing this? I want to go back and circle back to Hayek and this idea here of from his use of knowledge in society and this idea of division of knowledge, right? Nobody knows, right? Nobody actually knows what's going to happen uh, in terms of entrepreneurship innovation. So I've got some of my favorite quotes here. Um, the first one here is from Ken Olson, who was a, in 1977 was the chairman and founder of Digital Equipment Corporation. This was the leading sort of technology firm of the day, right? They were the ones that were on the cutting edge of produce, producing anything that would have been related to computers at that time or digital equipment. And, you know, he's supposed to be at the cutting edge of this industry. And his quote was, there's no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. Right? He couldn't foresee the idea of the PC, even though it was just around the corner, right? The idea of the personal PC, right? Wasn't something that occurred to him. And yet he was one of the leading people in this industry. Fred Smith, who's the founder of FedEx, went to Yale University and went to Yale Business School, right? And part of their senior project, they have to put together a business plan and his was for FedEx. And his professor at Yale, right? This is Yale University. These are not, right, business professors that don't have some idea of how the world works, right? They, these should be people that are at the top of their game in terms of understanding business practices. And his comment on his paper was that this concept is interesting, well-formed, but to earn better than to see the ideal, the idea must be feasible. He didn't think he could do it. He didn't think he could create FedEx, right? Now we have FedEx, we have UPS, we have all kinds of competition, right? Amazon Prime is now getting into the space delivering on their own. Um, 
right? Getting packages seven days a week, not just Monday through Friday, right? Um, he didn't foresee this. This this picture here, right, is the Microsoft Corporation, 1978. These are the these are the leaders of Microsoft. This is what they look like in 1978. That bottom left hand corner there is um, Bill Gates, right? If you saw this, if you said these are our leaders, these are the people in our in our software firm, right? 1978, would you have invested in this group? Would this be a group that you say, I have a lot of confidence that these people are going to reinvent, they're gonna revolutionize the software industry and computing? Who knew, right? At the end of the day, what I wanna suggest here is that Lots of state governments argue that they're business friendly. And to them, business friendly means that they offer these subsidies, they offer these uh, tax incentives. And what I wanna argue is that we need to be market friendly. We need to think about how do markets function best. We wanna discourage the unproductive uses of resources. We wanna rely on entrepreneurial discovery. We don't wanna rely on the state governments picking winners and losers and deciding where firms should locate, right? We wanna use capitalism, that rule of of the entrepreneur and profits and losses to try to direct resources, right? We'll get a better allocation of resources potentially and hopefully better outcomes because what we're doing right now has not been um, successful in terms of generating great economic outcomes. So that's what I have to say. I look forward to the idea of hopefully answering questions from everyone. Okay, great, great, Peter. Uh, very interesting presentation. Um, first, I just want to ask uh, for your thoughts on or clarification, perhaps, on why exactly we don't send, tend to, in practice, see a positive impact or benefit from these policies. And in particular, you know, do you think um, there would be gains that would be observable if only one government was offering the subsidies and what I'm getting at here is kind of you mentioned how or described how this is an arms race or for those that have had some exposure to game theory we could also describe it as a prisoner's dilemma right if we just had a world with two governments you know state A and state B um, you know each of them have you know if they came to that agreement to not offer subsidies if nothing was legally binding them to that they'd each have an incentive to defect and be the one that offers the subsidies right um, and in that case, it, it seems like there might actually be the advantage because if nobody else offers a subsidy and I do, well then, hey, I am influencing the firm's location decision or the firm's hiring decision. Whereas in the world where all of us compete and offer the subsidies, like you mentioned in the, at, at near the start of your talk, the outcome that we actually observe is the firm just locates where they were gonna offer, locate anyway, and then they get this windfall of big, you know, tax incentives or other benefits. So do you think we would actually observe more of an actual impact, more gains for a state if they could somehow be the only one that was offering the subsidy? It's possible um, that that's the case, but it also depends on how much they offer them and whether or not those incentives are luring them to a location that wouldn't be, you know, uh, potentially desirable for them otherwise, right? So in other words, if you could locate them to a place that they're further away from their distribution network or say the labor you know um, is not as educated or skilled as what they might require and they're having to invest a lot more say in job training or they're spending more on transportation right we could still be misallocating resources so the firm could maybe get a gain right in some ways but depending on what costs are imposed upon them for taking those incentives it's not clear that there's going to be some net gain to them for them right um you know, and we do see this uh, where firms struggle to find sometimes the right labor when they locate to these areas. Uh, you know, and so again, and are we getting a reshuffling of of labor and resources is the issue. I think there could be, right? I think the idea that that firm could gain, I think the firms stand a better chance perhaps of getting some um, economic windfall out of this, right? But it's not clear that the economic impact would be uh, that much better. And then the question is, is how long before uh, others defect, right? If it's a prisoner's right. dilemma game, right? Before others defect and everybody is jumping into the pool. You know, the idea that you can keep everybody on the sidelines. That's why I, I love the idea of the compact in general, but 
it's a very difficult thing, right? To get, it would take a lot of political will to say that this isn't the right strategy, to admit that this isn't the right strategy. Right, right. And just a reminder to the uh, students and others in attendance, if you have a question you'd like to ask, please put it in the uh, Q&A uh, feed and I can moderate. Um, do have one question from an attendee, uh, Giselle, and she was wondering in what ways can the government make sure that the companies in essence hold up their end of the bargain and actually create the jobs and do what they said they would do? And while not directly related to the topic of your talk, uh, when she asked that, it kind of put me in mind of um, some issues related to eminent domain and in particular the Kilo versus New London case where my understanding is that even after those you know, houses were seized from the residents and the government took them that you know, Pfizer in the end never built a plant there, right? And the, the land was just left, you know, you know, leveled, the houses were gone. Um, so what in, in practice, what's in place to make sure that the companies are actually doing what they're saying they're going to do? This is a good question. This is something I've actually been interested in. And the sad part is, is that we don't have good data on this, right? No one keeps up with this. No one, um, we have some knowledge of what's given to firms and what they promise, but very little data on um, what they actually do, right? Occasionally you'll hear the story, you know, if a, if a major firm fails like Pfizer or whatever to do what they said they were going to do. But sadly, we don't have a lot now. Uh, some states can offer what they call clawback provisions. And basically what they can have is uh, something in the deal that says, you know, if they don't create, say, the, the jobs, a certain percentage of the jobs that they um, promised, or if they don't generate enough output, that the state will, in fact, take back some of those resources. But from everything I've seen, states don't have, again, the political will to actually implement those. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, they they tend not to actually um, invoke those clawback provisions. And so while they're there, right, they very rarely do that. Occasionally you'll hear about a case for that. And that's the best thing that the states have. Um, but again, with the idea that they can extract, you know what I mean, sort of resources, they could always threaten to move um, and move locations often. So again, there's not a lot of accountability here on either the part of the state or the firm. There's actually good evidence, though, that suggests that the, the larger the number of jobs that, you know, the firm says they're going to create, the more money and the more likely they are to actually be offered an incentive. But that also means the greater amount of attrition between what they promise and usually and what they actually deliver on. Okay. Um, Actually, we have a pair of questions, although you answered one of them already um, and he noted that, but by Ben Scafferty, one of our center affiliated faculty who I know from talking to you ahead of time, you said you know fairly well and Ben says hello as well. Um, but Ben had first asked about kind of an interstate compact, which uh, again, I was a bit behind in reading some of the questions here and he acknowledges you already addressed that. But what he then asked was, could you see the perhaps federal government playing a role here uh, even if it took something like a federal constitutional amendment to kind of outlaw these arms races between states. Do you think that's anything that would be as effective from an economic perspective? And also if you could touch on maybe the political feasibility of it or likelihood. So that's that's actually an interesting question. That's actually what got me started uh, in this area. Back in the early 90s, uh, the um, the Fed at um, Minneapolis was actually uh, holding a conference on exactly that issue. And their whole issue was is that, you know, recognizing that all we're doing is sort of moving resources around and, you know, this is a waste of resources that maybe we needed some sort of uh, federal government involvement here to actually make it illegal. And that was what the conference um, was proposed. So that was back in the early 90s, right? And, and again, that's sort of what, that's something I came across that piqued my interest in all of this. Well, here we are, you know, 20 something odd years later, and, and um, you know, we still haven't been proposing that. Um, recently, I mean, I think in this administration, they actually suggested something along the lines of um, some tax penalties, right, to firms uh, for 
depending on what their incentives are, if they don't either live up to them or things of that nature or making it so that um, it wouldn't be worthwhile to either offer the incentives to the states um, from changes some changes in federal tax policy. Uh, and that's kind of an interesting thing, but it doesn't seem to be on anybody's radar at the moment, right? But again, if you couldn't get the compact, it seems to me that the federal government intervening in this way would be the only way that you could do this. Um, but as always, I'm always hesitant to want to bring the federal government in and say that we should have this one size fits all policy or this ban on this. So it's a double edged sword, right? But um, but that is been suggested and but it doesn't seem to be on anybody's radar uh, at the moment. OK, um, actually, this next one more of a, a comment as opposed to a question that comes from uh, Professor J.C. Bradbury, who I know from talking ahead of time, you also know fairly well. Uh, so first, he thanks you for your uh, virtual visit and your talk. And actually, I guess he wanted to let me know that he just looked up the recent return on investment estimates for the film industry in Georgia, which you noted was a, a state, you know, Georgia is a state that you know, does a lot of those film and TV incentives to a big degree. And looks like Georgia's numbers are actually a little better than some of the examples that you uh, mentioned. But still, JC said the best estimates are that it's a 30 cent return for every dollar invested. So it's still Georgia taxpayers are every tax dollar that's invested losing 70 cents on the dollar. So clearly, you know, you don't need to be a finance major to know that that's not a good return on investment. <laughs> so any comments on yeah. that? I've seen JC's work on this. Um, and uh, one of my colleagues does work on film incentives and I tend to just use it in my own, but I've seen JC's work on this um, and know that that's the case. And, and yet, right, we do this over and over again. Um, the uh, um, uh, doesn't directly answer this, right, but it, it's sort of an amusing anecdote. Um, one of my colleagues who actually worked to get those estimates that I used uh, in the talk had a a person from the film industry uh, come to him and say, well, look, you know, what should we be telling the state government, you know, to get them to offer us? Because in South Carolina, they were doing it as a proviso. So every year they'd have to vote on this as whether or not they would offer these kinds of subsidies or, or taxes. And he's like, you know, he's like, look, I just don't see this as a good investment. And, and, and he said, you know, you want to you want to do this. He's like, you want to be successful. And he was just very tongue in cheek. He's like, um, and at the time, Army Wives was a show on Lifetime that was um, filming in, in Charleston. And he said, oh, get some of your really attractive stars to go to the state capitol and ask them for money. And he said it very tongue in cheek, but they actually did that. They showed up with, you know, Catherine Bell and Kim Delaney, you know, and some of these others, and they made a plea, right? And they ended up turning it into, uh, they ended up getting what they wanted, right? So, um, you know, there's not a lot of, it's clear they're not looking at the evidence and they've, no one's done a lot of these calculations that JC's doing. That's the, that's the problem, right? No one's been doing any of these sort of counterfactuals. They just say it's good, right? And they have some sort of impact factor of um, multiplier of, oh, it generates this much business, but without thinking about what the costs are. Right? Mm. So no one's actually accounting for the opportunity costs of these resources. Right, right. And another industry um, that I know JC's done some work on that's related to this uh, is professional sports, right? And we have the Braves, relatively new Braves Stadium here in Cobb County, you know, just 10 minutes down the road from where our, our campus is located. And, you know, very often whenever a, a team's, you are know, looking to build a new stadium, very often they'll be able to basically get the government to pay for it. Um, and, you know, by, by threatening to move. Right. And, you know, looking at the NFL as an example, you know, for years, I think something that NFL owners probably loved was the fact that there was no team in L.A., you know, the second biggest market in the country. Um, you know, so the teams that were always looking for a new stadium, you know, Jacksonville or whatever would be having that, having that threat of, you know, hey, pay for our stadium or we're moving to L.A. Right. So kind of one of these examples of a, a company being able to, to leverage these types of threats, not in that case to necessarily locate, which was the primary focus of of your talk but as you also mentioned you know firms that are already there you know getting getting the additional funds just to stay there and and not move away um well great any more questions from the audience uh let's see it looks like we might have had one more come in here 
Um, oh, I guess actually JC just had a, a comment, you know, reminding the, the sports as well, you know, politicians love jocks and movie stars. <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, that's a, that's a common example. Um, uh, I encourage your students to look up the work of Craig Depkin, who's done a lot of work specifically on sports uh, and sports stadiums, um, along with JC. And, you know, I have yet to see a study that suggests that any of these stadiums, whether it's whether it's football, soccer, baseball, right, having any sort of real economic impact, um, you know, or good return uh, in terms of the stadiums. The um, I used to live in Charlotte before I was in Charleston, and I lived there when the uh, Hornets left. And I always thought it was interesting because uh, the um, owner of the Charlotte Hornets, right, was threatening to leave Charlotte if they didn't build him a new stadium. And the owner had a horrible reputation. He was known as a womanizer. He was this, he was that, right? He had to have his partner go in and beg uh, the, the local and state government. And they actually ended up putting it up to a um, referendum. And interestingly enough, voters said no, they weren't going to give money to build a new stadium in Charlotte. And the Hornets left. Mm-hmm. And then lo and behold, what happened, right? We, um, the NBA offered a new franchise. It went to uh, it went to Charlotte. They had a different owner, right? And everybody was on board with building a brand new stadium. And we did, right? They built the brand new stadium. They actually ended up getting the Hornets franchise back, right? New Orleans became the Pelicans, and you know, and we spent a whole bunch of money, right, for for nothing, right? So it was just the people didn't like the owner, and so they weren't going to. That's the only time I know where they've said no. Um, but in the end, they ended up spending all that money anyway, right? As soon as, um, as soon as they had somebody that they thought was worthwhile. Mm-hmm. No, and great that you mentioned Craig, uh, Craig's work. I'm, I'm familiar with him. Actually, we had a Bagwell Center event back in January of 2019. Uh, the JC organized a symposium on the economic impact of the Super Bowl. And if anybody's interested in that, seeing that event, we still have the multimedia up on the Bagwell Center's webpage. Uh, but you know, JC organized and spoke at that event and also had had Craig here to give a talk on kind of the, the economic impact on, you know, mega events like the Super Bowl and, you know, the, the tax revenues and impact on local economy or as in many cases lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Uh, better description. Um, um, Peter, thank you again for a wonderful presentation and it was a pleasure having you here. I appreciate him. Thank you. I appreciate all of you coming out and whatnot. Enjoyed it. Great. Thanks. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.